Brothers and sisters, could you turn in the Word of God this afternoon to Revelation chapter 1, book of Revelation chapter 1. Sometimes you wonder if you'll ever write a book. One thing you don't think about is if you'll write it in 30 days. That certainly wasn't the plan, but that was the deadline that was given to me. If you're you're going to do this, you have a month, so trying to write one chapter every two days. So I hope it will be a blessing to you. I uh, received an email earlier this week from a very distinguished and well-known pastor here in the United States that I have known for some time. And I was so humbled and encouraged that he had bought the book and read it and was sending an email just to say how refreshing and helpful it was. And he was buying 20 copies for all of his elders and his deacons to read as well. And I, I, I trust, brethren, you'll read it. And then you'll do something with what you read and that the Lord will use it for His glory. Revelation chapter 1, I'm going to read one text found in verse 16. The little time that we have here together, I hope will be of, of help to each of us. Revelation 1 verse 16. And he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. The focus that we will consider here is that the opening words of this verse, he had in his right hand seven stars. I know there's a a mixed crowd here this afternoon, but if you don't mind, I'm going to focus my attention upon the pastors, church leaders that are gathered here. I trust that there'll be something for everyone, but I have laser focus upon those of you that minister the Word. I thought about making a case as to the importance of revival, trying to prove the significance of this subject, and that every one of us believe that this is a real thing. There's such a thing as biblical revival, what is it, and then seeking God for it. For that, read the book. Instead, I'm going to address those of you that already believe that there's such a thing as revival, that history tells us that Our fathers that precede us clearly give evidence to the fact that revival is a real thing. Now, what you mean by that word, I understand there's a a spectrum there, but I'm not going to get into that this afternoon. But what I wish to do is stimulate the hearts of those pastors that believe in biblical revival, revival rightly understood, and to encourage you to seek after it. So my purpose is to be encouraging Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that he prayed for revival every day. If he prayed for revival every day, what was he praying for? And should we not enter into the same burden? I note on the cover of the book, Edwards believed that remarkable effusions and special seasons of mercy, that's the way God does His work. That's how the kingdom advances. And to those of you that are ministers, you need to get a hold of this that the the forward thrust of the K 
kingdom of Christ is through these effusions of the Spirit of God upon the ordinary means of grace. And you ministers are often very key. Now, we heard that God uses laymen, and that's true. God has used lay people in all sorts of instances that could be noted. But usually, usually God is working in the heart of a minister. The minister is God's preferred instrument to usher in his blessing, to feed the sheep and the lambs, and to raise them higher in their affections for the Lord Jesus Christ. We see here in this text, Revelation 1.16, he had in his right hand seven stars. What are these stars? We're told in verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And I know there's, there's variation with regard to what they are, what they indicate, but I join with many others in their understanding that these angels are the overseers of the church. They're the elders, the, perhaps even specifically the teaching elders of the church. Matthew Henry, he had in his right hand seven stars, that is the ministers of the seven churches who are under his direction. In Clark's commentary, he says the stars are afterwards interpreted as representing the seven angels, messengers, or bishops of the seven churches. John Gill, the ministers of the gospel, are compared to stars. So Christ has in his hand ministers of the gospel, men set apart for the distinct purpose of heralding divine truth to the hearts and minds and souls of men. And he is a special place for them in their ministry, a place in the hollow of his hand. That's what the text tells us. These angels, given the responsibility to guide, lead, and shape the direction of the local church, are found, verse 16, in his right hand. So what I want to consider with you for a short time here is what I've titled Pastors Standing in the Scars of Christ. Pastors Standing in the Scars of Christ. If you remember nothing else, if nothing else impresses your mind, dear preacher of the Word, if you can go away and consider, this is where I stand. I don't stand and need the, the approval of men. I don't stand based upon the opinions of men. I'm not to be in the hand of the congregation simply doing everything they desire of me. I stand in the hand of Christ and to think of that pierced hand, that's where I stand to minister the Word of God. I think it can be enlivening to our souls. So, let's consider this. First, pastors stand in a place of security. They stand in a place of security. He had in his right hand seven stars. When we think of this, I want to consider it in two ways. First, it is rooted in Christ's work. All Christians are in the hand of Christ. We know that. You're aware of that. I'm sure there a verse that immediately comes to your mind, John 10, 28, that he gives unto his sheep eternal life, and they shall never perish, 
neither shall anyone pluck them out of my hand. So the people of God are in the hand of Christ. Everyone here this afternoon, you are found in the hand of Christ, and that is a place of security. In the Old Testament, in Psalm 95, verse 7, we're told, He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, and the sheep of His hand. But what is true then of every Christian is obviously true of genuine faithful pastors. You're in the hand of Christ. Your labors are not without significance, but ultimately the reason that you'll get before God and live in eternal bliss with all those for whom Christ shed His blood is because of His work, not yours. You're never going to impress God to the degree that based on your merit, your faithfulness, your power, your influence, your credentials, that that is how you enter in before God. You know this. I mean, this, this is basic. We're going over the basics here. The reason you will go to glory, dear preacher of the Word, is because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude describes false teachers as, quote-unquote, wandering stars. They are wandering stars. They are not in the hand of Christ. They have no security. They have no salvation. They have no assurance. They are wandering, preaching another gospel, communicating other themes for their own ends and purposes. But you, I trust, are faithful. You're not a wandering star. You're a star in the hand of Christ, safe and secure in the knowledge that your sins are forgiven because of what Christ has done for you. In this security, it's not only rooted in Christ's work. Secondly, it releases Christians to work. It releases Christians to work. Later in this book, Christ will be depicted as ruling with a rod of iron. But that's not how we see him in his earthly ministry. We don't see him ruling with a rod of iron. We don't see, in fact, him at any time having a rod in his hand that I can tell, except for the occasion of his trial, when they are beating him and mocking him, and they put a robe on him, and we're told they put a reed in his right hand and say, Hail, King of the Jews. They were mocking him. There will come a time where he will come in power, in vengeance, and he will meet out his judgment upon the ungodly. But that's, that was not the hour of his earthly ministry, nor, nor is it even now. He is not exercising keen judgment upon the world. Rather, his primary purpose is to have, instead of a, a rod whereby he crushes his enemies, he puts ministers in his right hand. For what purpose? To declare his word, to herald the gospel, to go to the ends of the earth, to tell men and women and boys and girls Jesus saves. So based on the fact that Christ has done his work and given us grounds to be assured that we're saved, that our sins are washed away, that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, Based on that, then we are released to serve. We are sent out to serve. And ministers are at the forefront of that labor. They're in Christ's right hand. Get a hold of this. Get a hold of this. You're in Christ's right hand for the purpose of serving Him and described as a star. A star. Christ 
made the stars. The moon and the stars to rule by night, we're told in Psalm 136. They rule by night. And I think of that, and I think of, well, why then call the ministers stars? Well, they live in the night, don't they? We live in the, in the night of this age, in the night of all of its sin and depravity and rebellion. We, we live, and yet we are to be stars in the midst of that darkness, shining. Oh, brother, don't you see it? The day is dark, but it's not merely to be lamented. You are a star in the darkness. You shine more brightly because of the darkness. The day in which we live gives a greater opportunity for that light to be seen because it's so stark in comparison to what's going on in the world today. This is a day of opportunity, a day to beam brightly, to recognize I am there in the Savior's hand as a star. Let us not hide our light. Let us not run into the shadows. Let us not just bemoan the circumstances and lament who's in office and all the consequences of it. Yes, we may do that, but let us not do it to despair. We are in this current age living amidst the darkness. Daniel 12, verse 3, They that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Yes, those who turn many to righteousness. Of course, they're not in righteousness. They're in unrighteousness. They're in sin and wickedness, subject to their depraved nature. And what does a star do? The star comes and shows the light. The star comes and points to Christ and draws these sinners amidst their bondage from a condition of unrighteousness and unbelief and wickedness into the glorious light of the gospel. Brother, that's your job. Get up every Lord's day and do it with all of your heart. This is how you're wise, turning many to righteousness. That's what stars do. So this is your work, preacher. You are released from having to impress God. The burden of meeting God's law and the demands of His holy law has been satisfied by Christ. So your security is rooted in Christ's work so that you're then released to do your work by the help and power of the Holy Spirit. So you're in a place of security. Secondly, pastors stand in a place of sacrifice. It's not just a hand they're in. It is the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't forget that. You remember Thomas? Remember what he said in John chapter 20 when the disciples came and tried to encourage him? We've seen the Lord. And Thomas says, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And so he waited a whole week in his misery Went on an entire week, lamenting in his unbelief, wallowing in his disbelief, while the other disciples are, they're just elated. We've seen the Lord. But Thomas's curiosity was pricked enough that he got himself where he ought to have been the first Lord's Day, that second Lord's Day. And there he is, gathered with the disciples, and the Lord comes by. The Lord says a number of things, but just, just hone, in on three, hone in on three words he says. Thomas, 
Behold my hands. Behold my hands. Just think of that. What was he saying? Behold my hands. Oh, I heard what you said. I know what you're going through. I recognize it. And I am condescending here. Thomas, behold my hands. And that was all Thomas needed. People discussed that he thrust his hand into the way. I don't believe he did. I don't believe he needed to. He saw it. And the Lord says, Blessed are you having seen. He saw it. And that was it. And that was enough for Thomas. He spent the rest of his life laboring for the cause of Christ, declaring the gospel of the Lord Jesus to the ends of the earth. That, that, that one thing. He saw a nail-pierced hand, wounds that guaranteed that Christ had been successful in his work. And from that position, he labored. And John here is given a vision that would show that people like Thomas, who minister the Word, are actually in the hand, that very hand of the Lord. That was enough for Thomas to spend and be spent for Christ. It ought to be enough for each one of us. Thomas, filled with fresh confidence and belief, And what Christ has done for him stood there on a place of sacrifice, as it were, and preached. So two things as we consider pastors standing in a place of sacrifice. First, the nail-pierced hand is your message. The nail-pierced hand is your message. There is no revival of religion when we don't emphasize and re-emphasize and declare by the help of God the fundamentals of the Christian faith. There are aspects of the Christian faith that we need to look at and study and explore. There's lots of talk at the minute upon what we might term political theology, Christian nationalism. Should a Christian establish a robust political theology if they can? Sure, why not? Should we establish an understanding of the roles of men and women in the home? Absolutely. And there are all sorts of of details and subjects and matters that must be considered and studied and declared. But brothers, brothers, do not get on to hobby horses that lead you away from a crucified Christ. This is the message in every revival, every single one that has broken out, has come through an emphasis upon this. Make sure in all your dealings with the Word of God, you can say with Paul, in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. Amen. Now, people may come to you and they say, your emphasis on the cross, I need you to deal with Christian economics. I want you to deal with Christian nationalism. I want you to deal with these matters of government encroachment during COVID. And they all may have their place. But do not, if you wish to be a blessing to your people, and I mean a blessing where they're built up in their most holy faith, not with their heads filled with little details and enough little pieces of information about subject matter pertaining to what's going on in the world today. They must, you must be coming back all of the time and declaring the word from the foundation that the Son of God lived and died and rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father 
and build upon all those themes and magnify his three offices as prophet, priest, and king and what that means to those who believe. You may be labeled a pietist. To be quite frank, as I see the language of today that mocks and scorns, and there is, there is an excessive pietism, don't get me wrong, but many of those who mock those of a pietistic mindset, to be quite frank, use it as a slur, it seems to me, to deflect from their own carnality. What was the text John Livingston preached at the Kirk of Shots revival, which if you don't know it, read it, look it up. That great occasion had been a communion season. God had blessed during the communion season. The people were encouraged and nourished to the point that they felt, yes, let's have an extra meeting. Let's have a Monday meeting where we give thanks to God. Brother John Livingston, will you preach the word? And that Lord's Day evening, that night, they gathered together and they prayed. And they prayed through the night and they prayed in the morning. And Livingston finally got up. And what did he declare? What, did, what was the theme of his message? Ezekiel 36, 25 and following, Then wise sprinkle clean water upon you and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. And so on. God giving a new heart and so on. That was the text. It was... And with that text and that emphasis, emphasizing regeneration, emphasizing pardon and forgiveness and the glories of a complete work and the Son of God, the Holy Spirit came down in a fashion whereby almost 400 years later we're making reference to it. One minister who was there recorded, quote, I can speak on sure grounds that about 500 had at that time a discernible change wrought in them, of whom most proved lively Christians. It was the sowing of a seed through Clydesdale, so as many of the most eminent Christians in that country could date either their conversion or some remarkable confirmation from it. In other words, you couldn't go anywhere in that area without bumping into people who would say what God did that day. What I like about reading the Scottish men and some other, let's say, more conservative and reformed or whatever, just people who are balanced in their thinking about God's working, they, they wait until time passes before they, before they begin to talk about what occurred. A lot of people like to talk about what happened last night and they're, they're, they're sure about what actually occurred. But sometimes many things are just mere outward emotion. But think of it, one sermon, one sermon focusing upon regeneration, upon the work of Jesus Christ. 500 moved in salvation or the reviving of their hearts. 500. How do you change your community? How do you transform your church? How is it that you're going to see some manifestation that just changes people in a way that they never forget. It is by believing that this is largely how God thrusts forth His church. And believing that, then you begin to pray and seek God for it. 
Consider the doctrinal themes of George Whitfield. What a preacher. There are times when you read, when you read, it seems as if his words are as fire and the hearts of the people are like dry grass. They just melt. They melt. Just, just burned up. There are tears streaming their faces. And what was he focusing on? What was he dealing with? Political issues? Was he getting sidetracked to all the matters of the day? No. Read his sermons, what we have of them. Themes were depravity of human nature, the need of regeneration, the wonders of the cross, the glories of impudent righteousness. Why do we marvel? Why do we marvel that the most glorious message that transforms lives is basically a man standing and saying, Behold the Lamb! Why do we think that we need some other political maneuvering or some strategy and tactics of church growth that sidestep, ignore, and sometimes blaspheme against Jesus Christ as if the declaration of the Son of God is not sufficient? These are the themes that have changed communities throughout the ages. I mean meaningful change. So you see all the social media discourse and all this chat and garbage, and I tell you, pastor, stay out of it. Get on your knees and beg God for fresh and regular visions of Christ. Listen, you are to preach as if standing in the nail-pierced hand of Christ. Let that govern. Just, just, just look down where you stand. Where am I standing? He had in his right hand seven stars. That right hand that was nailed to that Roman cross. In that hand, I am, I am there. Look down and see the themes that should govern your emphasis. There can be no reviving of hearts in any meaningful way that does not focus on the sacrifice of the Son of God. When God spoke to his people Israel, when he let them know how he would commune and make his mind known to them, we are told in Exodus how he would do that. In Exodus 25, verse 22, There will I meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. Ah, the mercy seat. What's that telling us, beloved? Dear preacher, what's that saying? Is the grounds of divine communion to the hearts of men. That mercy seat... That blood-sprinkled mercy seat was the grounds upon which God communicated His Word to His people. You couldn't look at the mercy seat and not see the pierced hand of Christ, rightly understood. If you can't see it, you need your eyes to be opened to what's being communicated there. It is the sacrifice. It is based on that sacrifice, that atonement, that God communicates his mind to men. Well, brothers, that's what you're to do. You're to get onto that ground. And you have it right here. You stand right on the nail-pierced hand of your Redeemer. You get in behind your pulpit and you declare, here, what, what are my themes? What am I to focus upon? What am I to give my attention to? Is it not these great themes? There's no genuine revival without man's revived interest in Christ. 
You can revive interest in homeschooling. Very good. I'm all for it. You can revive interest in Christian schools being established. Very good. I'm all for it. You can revive interest in all sorts of Christian institutions being erected. I'm for it. I'm not against it. But you can revive interest in institutions without any real, meaningful difference in homes. Have we not seen that sufficiently? Have we not seen the corruption of all sorts of leaders in some of these movements in the last couple of decades? Enough to open our eyes and realize this isn't the silver bullet. John, Jonathan Anderson at a conference that was held in Glasgow in 1840 He said, we may imagine that a revival has taken place when churches are multiplied, ministers are increased, and people are flocking to ask admission to spiritual privileges. They want to be at the Lord's table and be baptized and be at the Lord's table. But all that may be, and religion be on the decline or extinguished altogether. Where will you find such multitudes claiming this kind of interest? As in the church of Rome. And yet that church is so degenerate as to be no better than a synagogue of Satan. The church prospers. Religion is revived when, as on the day of Pentecost, multitudes are pricked in their hearts and cry out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And when, through the operation of the Spirit bringing them to Christ, they obtain actual interest in Him and in all the blessings of His grace. End quote. Actual interest in Him. Yes, is that not the theme of the Song of Solomon? I want to see my beloved. And that's what the man, the heart of man needs, whether he knows it or not. And often you stand before a people, sometimes even the Lord's people, you stand before them and they're slothful in their spirit. And part of your job, part of your job is to stand there on the grounds of Christ's finished work and you're to herald a message that doesn't rally them to a political endeavor, but rallies them to see, oh, the splendor of your Redeemer. Child of God, see Him. Behold Him. Consider Him. Love Him. Serve Him. Make no limits to the sacrifices you can make for Him. They come in with all their burdens and all their distractions and your jaw. And Christ is helping you with this. He's setting you right there in His hand. He's saying, go on, my servant. Preach. Preach from here. Preach about this. About the very truth upon which you stand. The Neil Pierce hand is not only your message, it is your motivation. It is your motivation. What greater motivation to faithful Christian service can there be than standing on the scars where Christ was pierced? Was it not that nail-pierced hand that got a hold of you? That dragged you out of your sin and your misery? Oh, take a moment and think, think. For some of you, the years are long. You look back, it seems a long time ago. For me, I look back this year, it's 20 years. I can hardly believe it. 20 years. That nail-pierced hand got a hold of a 19-year-old a reprobate in so many ways 
having no interest in the things of the Lord. I mean, reprobating my manner, reprobating my ways. And yet, mercifully, not to be cut off from Him forever, He set His love upon me, He took a hold of me, and He dragged me into His arms. And for the first time ever in my life, I saw the beauty of the Lamb. Remember it. Remember the tears shed. Remember the love expressed. Remember the devotion that you promised. Remember what, where you were then and remember it. How that hand dragged you from the very brink of hell itself. And it's the reason why you will never, you will never darken the door as it were of, of hell. You'll never smell the sulfur. You'll never burn in all the never-ending agonies of the wrath of God. You'll never be there. So remember, see that hand? Oh, oh, preacher, prepare your sermons from that hand. There it is. Live, live your life always in that hand. Pierced, pierced for you. When obedience is difficult, look where you're standing. See the pierced hand and remember that Christ, Philippians 2, 8, became obedient unto death even the death of the cross. That's what that hand reminds you of, isn't it? So he became obedient unto death. The Son of God took flesh and was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I stand right there. I can't forget. I can't forget. So when obedience is hard for me, I am to remember that. When you feel like quitting, what are you to do, Pastor? What are you to do? Live some... <laughs> Listen to some motivational speech preached by some carnal individual who tells you how wonderful you are. No. No, look where you're standing. See the pierced hand and remember that Christ, Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. That's, that, that wound's right there. He endured the cross. Now, your, your, your people may test you sometimes. <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll be listening to the last talk that you just heard and remember your own time in the business world. And you'll be thinking, you know, that maybe was an easier way to make ends meet. Maybe I should go back there. No, 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 no. Not if, you, not, if you've, not if you've had a heavenly vision, as it were, a divine call to preach the word. When you feel like you crave notoriety, Pastor, oh, you wish, you wish you had more recognition. You wish people understood and valued you more. When, when you start thinking that way, what are you to do? You're to look at that hand where you stand and from which you preach, that nail-pierced hand, and you say with Paul, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was a nail-pierced hand that motivated Paul to be perceived as a fool for Christ's sake, 1 Corinthians 4.10. It was a nail-pierced hand that motivated him to discipline his body and bring it into subjection, 1 Corinthians 9.27. It was a nail-pierced hand of Christ that motivated Paul to keep going every one of the five times he was lashed by the Jews, every time he was beaten with rods, the time he was stoned, shipwrecked, in various perils, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, and fastings often, in cold and nakedness, Paul never forgot that he was in the hand of his Redeemer. 
It shaped everything about him. Thirdly and finally, pastors stand in a place of sovereignty. Security, sacrifice, and sovereignty. It is not just any hand you're in, preacher. It is in the right hand of the Lord Jesus. Firstly, Christ's sovereign hand is able to dispense revival. And I'm, I could say anything there, but I'm talking about revival, mentioning that as the emphasis. His hand is able to dispense revival. All the verses of the Bible, Exodus 15, 6, Thy right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Psalm 17, 7, Show thy marvelous kindness, O thou that savest by thy right hand them which put their trust in thee. Psalm 20, verse 6, He will hear him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Psalm 63, 8, My soul followeth hard after thee, thy right hand upholdeth me. Psalm 98 verse 1, O sing unto the Lord a new song, for he hath done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm hath gotten him the victory. Psalm 118 verse 16, The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. So the right hand, and there are many others, verses that is, I could mention, is a symbol of power, a symbol of ability. Christ's sovereign hand is able to dispense blessing that far exceeds even what we can ask or think. But also, Christ's sovereign hand is willing to dispense revival. It's not just able. It's one thing to say God's able. And that's the difference between someone who is theologically correct and someone who has enjoyed his theology bedding into his soul and it shaped him. Because I would say the vast majority here would say, God is able. God is able. God is able to turn around my church, my community. God could turn around America. God is able. You could say that. That's where you have your theology right. You have your theology right. But your theology hasn't shaped you until you know He's willing and you believe it. The right hand signifies not just power but favor. You see this when Joseph tries to push Manasseh to the right hand of Jacob. You see it in language such as Psalm 44, verse 3. Speaking of his forefathers, the psalmist says that they got not the land in possession by their own sword, neither did their own arm save them, but thy right hand and thine arm and the light of thy countenance, because thou hast a favor unto them. I am convinced that Christ is more willing to dispense revival than we are willing to believe. We do not seek for it because we do not think it worth our effort. So I want to encourage you before we close here. William Burns was pastor of Kilsyth. I hear Americans pronounce some of these Scottish places in all, all sorts of weird and wonderful ways. That those of us of Scottish origin, we just politely sort of smile and <laughs> say nothing. But of course the same is true. You're having to forgive, forgive some of my pronunciation today. Pastor of Kilsyth. And he saw a revival in his own day. He saw God work. 
powerfully in his own parish. And he believed God was willing to dispense it. And when he was asked to speak on the mode of conducting a revival, it's a little strange, the title of that, the mode of conducting a revival. Because these men didn't believe that they had the ability to dispense revival. God is sovereign. But he, he did believe that there, were, there was human instrumentality in it. In other words, if we really want this, then there are things that we will inevitably do. And here was some of his practical advice. I'm, I'm skipping here just very quickly over the points that he gave. First, quote, holiness to the Lord should be inscribed upon all and everyone engaged in such a work. He goes on to say, all who bear the vessels of the sanctuary should be holy. If you're not prepared to live a holy life, forget it. Forget it. And that means being a little more, let's say, particular about the manner of your living. One of the saddest things to see from someone who did not grow up in a Christian home is to watch those who grew up in a Christian home that was perhaps a little strict. And maybe it wasn't so much what they were asked to do or not do, but the way in which they were asked to do it. And so they grow up, gain independence, and then, they, and then the pendulum swings the whole other way. I don't have to do all those. Those were external things that my parents expected of me. They're not required of me. And on certain particulars, if we were to talk, I would say, I agree. Hey, you're not required to hold that position. Practice that or don't practice that, whatever. You're not required. But, but the devil, the devil is so sneaky. He doesn't just give justification for those things. He begins to feed lies of justification for other things that are damaging to the soul. And they begin to lose out with God and get cold and indifferent. And they start saying, it's legalism to say to read your Bible every day. That's legalism. Oh, very good. Okay, legalism, right? Well, maybe if I was saying this is the means by which you're saved is legalism. Yes, but that's not what we're saying. Are you going then in your, your hard hearted endeavor to ignore the Word of God and expect that that neglect of His Word, God's going to bless because you're standing in on the grounds of your liberty. Wise up. And this kind of reasoning is going on among younger generation. And I look as someone, I wish I had your upbringing, probably. Brought to the house of God from youth, never knew a day when you didn't know the gospel, memorizing scripture with a young mind and not giving years of your life, not understanding what we're made for and what God's call is in our lives. I wish for that. These carnal young people, and if you're here, I say this lovingly, and it may not sound it, but believe me, <laughs> I, am, I, am, I love your soul for Christ's sake. And I hope that maybe a different voice that's not your parents who maybe look at the stain with what you're doing and so on or some other person in your life that you feel is like the elder brother scorning you because they see you as being out in the far country. I'm, I'm not going down that path, but I'm, in Christ's name, I beg you to pull the harness in a little on your exercise of your so-called liberty. 
Be very, very careful because the devil is more deceitful than you can imagine. Holiness to the Lord. Secondly, prayer unceasing and earnest is that we're in the great strength of a revival of religion lieth. This it is which draweth down the pure, life-giving, animating influence which sets all hearts in motions. Prayer unceasing and earnest. Prayer. He emphasizes this. I don't have time. My time is almost gone. He argues about not, it's not the strength of your eloquence and all the rest of it, but, but pray. And you have to. Exhorts to having a prayer meeting. You have to have times of prayer. Thirdly, to carry forward and extend a revival while all the ordinary means of grace must be regularly and zealously maintained. And he's saying, like, keep the main thing. Keep, keep gathering on the Lord's day. Keep doing your services. Don't abandon Sunday evenings. Don't say those things aren't important. No, no, maintain the historic practice among Protestant churches. Hold on to these things. But he also encourages, and it seems as if he was fighting against some men that felt that there was no need to add to that. And he, he felt like if you're not prepared to be uh, adaptable to changes and needs, you're not going to see revival. He talked about, quote-unquote, uncanonical hours. <laughs> uncanonical hours. The hours that we don't, the church doesn't normally meet. The minister has to be prepared to have meetings that are different seasons and open to calls of, from penitent hearts regarding the need of their souls at all hours of the day and so on. Fourthly, another very valuable means of carrying forward the work of revival is pastoral visitation. I have to skip here, but he's, he's not just talking about pastoral visitation, but with a purpose. And I was convicted by this. He said, ask Ask the question, are you in a habit of prayer? And if you discern any hesitation, any evading of the question, ask, did you pray this morning? Now, we don't ask that of our people. Often these questions are left ignored, and so we don't cultivate in them a heart to keep going on with God, and they drift. And then fifthly, another means of carrying forward revivals is the appointment of days of fasting and of thanksgiving. Special times of extended prayer in the church and so on. Well, as I say, time has gone. Ultimately, let me say this. Revival has never come but to a place that has in its midst those who care to have it. Revival never comes and everyone there is like, oh, I wasn't expecting this. There's always a handful of people who have been there for weeks and months and years sometimes, assembling and seeking God. Open heaven, Lord. Turn us and cause thy face to shine upon us and we shall be saved. I wonder... You, pastor, do you have any desire for this? That Christ has placed you in his right hand to minister and to serve is the honor above all honors. And you need to feel pity for the church 
to a degree that you're willing to suffer. That means late nights of prayer. That means early mornings. That means extended seasons. That means hard labor before God in prayer. You stand in a place of security, sacrifice, sovereignty. Like Thomas, you should behold his hands and labor as one that must give account. Remember, as a star, that's what you are. You labor amidst the darkness of this world. That means it's not easy. We see even in our Lord Jesus how often he went while it was still dark, a great while before day is how it's put in the word sometimes. Or other occasions such as when he was appointing the twelve, he went up and was in prayer all night. Or in the Garden of Gethsemane, what's he doing? Again at night he's there praying. He was beaming amidst the darkness of a perishing world and beaming from the place of prayer. That's your place too. That is your place too. Because there's a day coming when our light will be swallowed up in another light. And finally, the Lord will call us home having completed our labors on earth. And we go into that land that is fairer than day, that needs no stars doesn't need the sun or the moon because the glory of God lightens it and the Lamb is the light thereof. And there we will see again the wounds and they will remind us it was worth it all. Brothers, seek God. Seek Him like you've never sought Him before. If my little publication can in any way encourage that, praise His name. May the Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer. Last year there were those that were encouraged and helped to start prayer meetings in their churches as a result of our exhortations. If I can be of any help to any of you, brethren, I'm here, glad to contribute what I can to encourage you. Lord, we ask your help. We are so feeble. I feel it myself. God, I pray that we would, we would be humbled and broken by the simple thought that we stand upon the scars of our Redeemer, ministering His precious Word to the perishing souls of men and the hungry appetites of Thy sheep. Give us greater power. May we see an outpouring of Thy Spirit. God, we need Thee. Do something even the remainder of this afternoon. Maybe tomorrow will be the high day day when we all say right there we met with God. Granted for the glory and honor of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.